Spencer Balpert, the two on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, uh, as he endeavors to do every Monday, Dave Cameron, on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of some interest uh, to this edition of Fangraphs Audio and the conversation which follows, a consideration briefly of the 2015 iteration of the New York Yankees. The Zips projections for that club uh, were just published on Monday. It would be hard to make a case uh, for great optimism regarding that club. Also, the baseball equivalent of uh, passing from the one-yard line, Dave Cameron attempts to identify what in the past time might be similar to the Seattle Seahawks' decision to pass when uh, popular opinion would seem to suggest that running the ball with Marshawn Lynch might have been the best idea. Discussed in greatest depth of what follows, however, uh, is a series of articles written by Dave Cameron recently regarding a combination of pace of play and also run scoring, the current run environment in the game. Dave Cameron has a modest proposal for effecting positive change in that regard. I think if we're actually talking about the dual goals of shortening the length of games and potentially improving run score, increasing run scoring a little bit, uh, I think you know, removing the ability of teams to use five or six or seven pitchers during a game is maybe the most direct way to affect all of those factors at the same time. Fangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Nailed it down. Okay. What uh, did you nail down? Well, I'm just saying, we've confirmed that this is all true. Okay. All right. Uh, hey, I want to, uh, over the past week, I would say the bulk of your work at the site has been directed uh, towards the concerns about length of game. Or, yeah, changing the game, or modifying the game, or maybe improving the game, depending on your perspective. Improve it, yeah. Well, and, and, and it's largely one, well, I suppose it's borne out in terms of the numbers, but at some level it's an aesthetic question, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, uh, you know, no question that baseball in its current form is okay. <laughs> like, we all like it, and we spend a lot of time thinking about it, and so it's not this, you know, slog of a thing that we all despise. So, you know, you're taking something that we generally all think is pretty good uh, and maybe thinking about ways to maybe make it better or, you know, some people might think make it worse, but taking something that we, we like and maybe trying to tweak it to make it better. Right. And so uh, I wanted to, from this post you've written over the last week, I wanted to maybe use this as an opportunity to sort of summarize the facts which you have treated okay. and also maybe um, some of the <coughs> proposals uh, why, whether more or less outlandish for addressing them, um, what might be considered uh, shortcomings in the modern game. Sure. Uh, that sounds like a good, good plan. Okay. Uh, one of the things, that, one of the facts is that games are longer. True? Absolutely. They're the longest they've ever been. They're the longest they've ever been. And they, they were the longest they've ever been in the year 2014. Yeah, and the longest before that was the year 2013, and before that was 2012. I uh, think like there was a stretch in them, you know, kind of, absolute peak of the steroid era where games went over three hours because there was so much run scoring. Uh, but then they declined uh, back under three hours, which is historically it's been around two and a half, and an inch toward three. Um, so then we had like a, a nice steady decline. 
Uh, and then over the last five years, it's it's taken off again, even though we don't have run scoring anymore. Now we have a uh, time of game that would suggest there was run scoring. Right, and, and that was another point, is that we actually have fewer runs, uh, over, especially over the last five years, right? Right, so run scoring is going down and time of game is going up, which is not a great combination. Right, and that's and this is to a point that you made, uh, I think it was for one of your Fox Sports, the Just a Bit Outside pieces, that the runs per hour, which is not a... Uh, I guess it's not something I had ever really considered thinking about, but really it is sort of at the core. It, it uh, in that case runs acts as a proxy f- for action. Yeah, I mean, right. I think this is one of the things that you know I hadn't also ever thought about, like in a, a metric of runs per hour, until I was writing that piece, and then I wasn't sure why I hadn't thought of it or why other people hadn't thought about it in relation to other sports as well. I mean, one of the most common knocks on soccer in America is that they play an hour and a half of. Uh, you know, football with a uh, halftime, so you know it's a two-hour game, and the scores are often one-zero or two-one, and it's two, just not enough happens. People say, "Man, you sit around and you cheer for, you know, almost goals, or you get really excited about a shot because there's just so little action." And their their complaint is essentially that there isn't enough reward for their two-hour investment. Uh, baseball is now in a sport where, or at least is is a sport where, you know, games often end 2-1 or 3-2, uh, sometimes 4-3 or something in those those lines, and the game takes three and a half hours. So, we, you know, we're taking 50% as long as a soccer, or 50% longer than a soccer game and rewarding with, you know, fans with not that many more runs. Uh, and if, you know, one of the main reasons that soccer hasn't caught on in America is a lack of action, I don't know we want, I don't know if we want baseball to trend more in that direction. Right. And, and I'm sure there's other sorts of action besides just run scoring, but it is true that a lot of the things that happen on the baseball field, if they're not, if runs are not scoring themselves, um, then they, they are leading to runs or leading to the, to a greater probability of runs scoring. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, at least, you know, and this is again all speculative and mostly aesthetic, is that, uh, the components of run scoring are really exciting as long as they lead to run scoring, and if they don't lead to run scoring, they're kind of actually frustrating and you'd almost rather they don't happen, right? So like if you're a fan and your team goes, you know, single, 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 loads the bases, and then they don't score, you're kind of pissed and you'd rather like, well that was a waste of 10 minutes of time, and now I'm just mad at all these guys who couldn't get a run in or runner in from third with nobody out. Uh, and if that happens repeatedly, where you're like, you're getting eight or nine hits and you strand them all, at the end of the game, everyone's just angry. Like, where's my clutch hitting? And So you'd rather see, it. so if it's going to be a shutout, at least you kind of want to just get, you just want to get beat by the other pitcher. You want to get, like, beat down and not have had a chance and just be like, wow, Clayton, Clayton Kershaw is really good. Yeah. Uh, you don't really want to have, like, 15 guys on base and none of them score. <laughs> so, so how do you prevent do that? You're, you are going to outlaw the single? <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, this is one of those things. It's like, uh, if you say, we want more runs, we want more excitement in baseball, I think is like, if that's kind of the hypothesis, if you say, you know, games are taking longer, there's less exciting things happening or fewer exciting things happening, how do we shift this? Well, we want the games to not take as long, but we also want more exciting things to happen. I think the reality is we want more runs. I mean, you know, as, uh, you know, as much as triples are fun to watch and stolen bases are nice, there are aesthetic changes you can make that don't necessarily uh, dramatically change the run environment, but it, you know we were, did run a poll last week on the site, and you know with the caveat that Fangraphs readers are a very skewed percentage of baseball fans, uh, it seemed very clear that most people preferred more runs. I think all the all the options for higher run environments did better than all the options for lower run environments. I do think in just conversations with casual fans, they prefer a six-five game to a three-two game. Right, and now do do you have a sense of how? 
people, I mean, because the runs can come about a couple different ways. They can come about from home runs. And, of course, I think that that was the, the home run spike. Uh, was the, uh, That was largely the influence of the runs per game during the sort of late 90s, right? Yeah, I mean, right, the rise of the home run was uh, one of the main drivers of the run environment in the steroid era. Right. And um, but but of course home runs now they're not uh, they are not rally killers but um, <laughs> because they're good to have but they are sort of there is less I would say um, and this is I think that this happens to, too is baseball analysts sometimes conflate their aesthetic interests with the yeah. those things that actually help win games they're not necessarily rally killers but they are sort of narrative killers right or yeah. su- suspense killers. Yeah, right. They're a, they're the conclusion of a rally. Right. So maybe they're not killing them, but they're ending them, which is not the same thing. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, there's no question that if you just have a whole bunch of home runs, uh, you don't have necessarily this like kind of state of perpetual tension where there's always guys on base. You're always pitching out of the stretch. Uh, you know, I think for from a fan perspective, that's maybe more interesting in that you know every pitch kind of matters and there's more strategy going on and there's more things happening than if it's just home run, home run, home run, and you're uh, constantly like, oh, well, there's nothing happening. No, there's a home run. You know, like if if you're just um, surprised by the scoring, it's a little different than to be in a, a state of anticipation, which is kind of what a sustained rally gives you. Right, right, and that's a. I think that's probably a nice feeling. So, so in one problem, right, when there was more home run hitting, is that this also led teams to field players who were who had different body types, right? Who were yeah. giant people as opposed to sort of lithe and fast ones. Right. I mean, if, a, in, if you're in an environment where home runs are plenty, uh, then it doesn't make sense to steal bases nearly as often. I mean, you know, getting yourself from first to second base doesn't matter if the next ball is going over the wall or going off the wall even. Uh, so when you have a guy who's hitting the ball really far, base stealing and, and base running in general are become less much become far less important. Uh, so we kind of moved away from the style of the 80s and Vince Coleman and Ricky Henderson and all those guys and just had, you know, Jason Giambi playing all nine positions. Right. Although, was Vince Coleman very good? Uh, he was very fast. Was he good outfielder? Do we know? Um... I think he was good defensively. I think, uh, if I'm memory serves, I think he was like a 30 or 40 win player, which is not bad. I think he was, uh, you know, above average Actually, Cameron, player during his peak. I'm just, this is going to crush you. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. 11, 11 win player. Well, you know, it's not that far from 30. <laughs> okay, That's so true. Vince Coleman was apparently bad. Yeah, you know, who? I, but there is a player who was surprisingly good for that. Maybe it's Willie McGee. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking of Willie McGee. Are you thinking yeah. of Willie Let's McGee? Let's look up every fast cardinal outfielder in the 80s. Okay, Willie was about 30, Willie was about 30 runs. Okay, 30, 30, 30 wins. 30 wins. So right, I'm going to say that I conflated Vince Coleman and Willie McGee. Yeah, they sort of had. They both had. They both had funny faces. <laughs> and that's true. And yeah. uh, they both played outfield for those Cardinals yeah. teams. That were, I mean, it's basically just a bunch of guys shaped like Vince Coleman and Willie McGee. Yeah, they just basically had a team of those guys. And you know, like again, this goes back to aesthetic preferences. I think people really like my memory uh, growing up in the '80s and kind of learning about baseball in the '80s. Is people really liked that team. Uh, you know, I didn't. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say a bad word about those mid '80s Cardinals when their league leading home run or their their team leading home run guy had 20 home runs, uh, and they just stole a million bases and played kind of a low environment, low run scoring environment. Uh, you know, lots of speed and defense. But it, I think people tended to appreciate that style of baseball. And I, you know, if we're going to have lower run scoring, I think that's the type of lower run scoring that people would prefer, rather mm-hmm. than just everybody walking back to the dugout after striking out. Right, right, right. And and uh, to to that point, uh, you have in your 
Uh, in one of the posts, it was the post called uh, "Does the, Does Major League Baseball Need More Offense in the Modern Game?" A very striking graph in that is the one uh, you published, which is essentially walk, strikeout, and hit by pitch rates. Just the, the sum of those uh, in in the Major League Baseball since 1900, and it is a it's a pretty uh, steady increase. Yeah, it's a, I think it kind of has been increasing over time, but especially has been increasing really rapidly over the last, say, 20 or 30 years. I think, you know, for a long stretch of baseball, it was in the 10 to 20% range, uh, you know, for a sustained period of time, um, you know, where walk and strikeout rates were, you know, not that far apart, and then you'd have some hit batters now. There's a huge gap between walk and strikeout rates where batters are striking out, you know, two and a half times as often as they walk, um, and that's kind of unprecedented in baseball history. Right. Right. Uh- um, now we have that, that that points out that we have less contact. What is the relationship, the correlation between the lack of contact and the abundance of relief pitchers in the game? I mean, so there's certainly a relationship, but it's not it's not the only driver. I mean, you know, we can see starting pitching strikeout rates have gone up significantly over time too. It's not just that you know we have more relievers and more platoon advantages, uh, but I think the evolution of the pitching staff has changed the entire batter pitcher interaction where it used to be you know pit starting pitchers used to throw the whole game they'd go through the lineup four or five times uh they would pitch worse and they would be less effective because you know as we know there's a significant time through the order penalty uh teams didn't used to really account for that they just left their starting pitcher in there to throw 140 150 pitches and pitch the whole game and uh so we would have less effective starting pitchers because they were uh working more and working in more situations where they were less effective now you don't have that as much, so starting pitchers are being used uh, when they're most effective and then being removed for relievers who are more effective than the starter who they just replaced. Uh, so you kind of have this um, kind of high-performing pitcher on the mound at all times. We very rarely have kind of tiring, uh, worsening starting pitchers on the mound late in games, especially in games that matter. Uh, and so, you know, I think we kind of see that both starters and relievers have had their performance improve because they're being utilized more efficiently. Is there a certain – so you do propose, and I think that may, perhaps as much for a thought experiment as it, in earnest, a, a rule uh, limiting teams to four pitchers during a regulation game. Yeah, I mean, I would say – so it is partly thought experiment in that, I, you know, it's not going to happen. I mean, this isn't like a, a thing that's on the table that the Major League Baseball is actually going to adopt. But I'm not sure that I would be against it. Like, this isn't necessarily one of those just like crazy ideas just for discussion. I think if we're actually talking about – the goal, the dual goals of shortening the length of games and potentially improving run score, increasing run scoring a little bit, uh, and, you know, maybe by decreasing strikeouts, uh, in a way to make the game, even if run scoring doesn't go up a lot, maybe aesthetically changing things back to a contact oriented, uh, more 1980s, early 90s style of baseball, uh, or 1970s, somewhere in, in that kind of game. Uh, I think you know, removing the ability of teams to use five or six or seven pitchers during a game is maybe the most uh, direct way to affect all of those factors at the same time. I was I was surprised to see, and this was a this was a graph you borrowed from uh, 538. I think Neil, Neil Payne and Jonah Carey. Yep. Uh, wrote, um, the I was surprised to find, and I, I guess I probably, probably shouldn't have been, but the the, the actual relief innings pitched per game has not actually increased that greatly since, you know, over the last 50 years or so. Yeah, it's about half an inning per game. They're right. getting basically, you know, an extra out or two. Right. And 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 that's – so you usually think, like, especially 
what, beginning with the kind of Tony La Russa era Oakland A's with Dennis Eckersley, uh, increased specialization for relief pitchers. I, I, I guess for me, at least, uh, without it really having bothered to check in any great depth and just sort of accepting the narrative that this is a period during which uh, relief pitchers began pitching many more innings, but that wasn't so much the case. It's just there are more of them. Yeah, right. We, we used to have a four-man bullpen, and those four guys would split, you know, 500 innings between them or 400 innings between them. If each of them, throw, you know, the top couple guys would throw 120 innings, and you'd have some guys throwing 70 or 80. Now, like, the, the most any relief pitcher throws is 80, and, and it's more like 40, 50, 60, somewhere in there. Uh, so we basically just increased the number of relievers and spread it out over the same number of innings or close to the same number of innings over seven or eight pitchers instead of over four. Right. Now, the, there have been a number of instances, like uh, like with the Major League Draft, Right where uh, there were certain teams that identified areas that they could exploit with regard to the draft, right where they could um, spend uh, spend more money than the suggested slot price, right? Right. Uh, now, t- so typically the teams that were doing this, the ones that had uh, thought about it, applied the you know analysis to it, and said, well, we can gain an advantage here. Uh, of course, there have been rules made in the meantime. The new CBA. Uh, has done a lot to curtail excess spending in the draft. There's a, there's a great deal of penalties that are applied to any team that does that. And so you neutralize that advantage uh, that that these smarter teams, and the, theoretically the smarter teams once had. Uh, is there anything to suggest that it's the smarter teams that are utilizing the most relief pitchers, that have the most relief pitching changes during the course of, of a game or over the course of a season? Not really. I mean, you might have been able to make that argument 20 years ago, perhaps, mm-hmm. but now it's basically every team in baseball is running at least a seven-man bullpen. Some are running eight, uh, but basically everyone kind of manages the bullpen in the same way now. There's no real team that is, you know, utilizing their bullpen in a dramatically different way than the norm. I mean, you know, we basically just created a, a standardized format of a closer and a couple of setup men and some middle relievers and a long guy. Uh, and that's what every team does. And so I don't think we have a competitive advantage in bullpen usage right now. Uh, maybe we'll go that direction if things go un- unchecked and maybe teams really will move away from this kind of, um, you know, de-rigger uh, format. But right now, basically everyone's doing the same thing. If you if you had just – if you were only allowed to use four pitchers during a game, what would be – what would that do to pitching staff? It seems like it, <clears throat> guys who throw with max effort would be – there would be less of them. I think they would all move to the bullpen. Right. So I, I use the example of Francisco Liriano uh, in the post. I think guys like that, where you have these super high pitch count starters who, you know, rack up lots of walks and lots of strikeouts and don't really pitch that deep into games, I think those guys become bullpen guys instead of starting pitchers. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people are suggesting, okay, if you only could use four pitchers in a game, teams would carry, you know, far fewer pitchers. I'm not sure that's the case because we aren't suggesting that, you know, teams have to declare before the game which four pitchers they're going to use. You can still have, you know, 12 active pitchers, uh, but you just have to pick four of them throughout the game uh, based on, you know, kind of the platoon advantage or the score or, you know, the leverage situation. Um, but you can still have kind of your, you know, same 13, 12, or 14, 11 hitter-pitcher split. And then, you know, say your starting pitcher uh, needs to get pulled in the seventh inning and they've got three left-handers coming up. You've got a couple left-handers available because that's the point at which you still want to go to the bullpen. Um, but now you probably can't just have a left-handed specialist. I think that would be the main the main advantage that would go away is you, the Randy Choats of the world would get, would probably not exist in Major League Baseball. So you're trying to you're trying to 
um, take Randy Church's job away from him? Um, well, not per, not like I don't have something specifically against Randy Choate. But <laughs> no, I am, if, you, I, if you've constructed this entire like week's worth of posts just because you want Randy Choate to get fired, yeah, screw Randy Choate. That's the, that should have been the the yeah. headline of the week. It's yeah. just uh, we hate Randy Choate. Yeah, what a jerk. Yeah, um, but that's not what you want to do. That I mean, you know, I think that it, so the existence of guys like Randy Choate is one of the reasons why run scoring is going down and time of game is going up. And so I think if we could you know, replace the Randy Choates of the world with more, you know, Dellen Batansis's, not necessarily in terms of, like, stuff and, and quality, but usage. I mean, I think Dellen Batansis threw 90 innings last year. Uh, if you could have more relievers like that and fewer guys like Randy Choate who threw maybe 40 innings last year, I think baseball would be better off. The uh, the lefty one-out guy, the Lugie, also known as Lugie Union, is not, would not like this uh, these proposed changes. Yeah, thankfully there's no, they don't have any power. They don't have any power. Like the highest paid loogie, I think, makes like two million bucks or something. So yeah, well they would just show up. Like if you were to have a court case, like they would just show up, but only for like a couple. Minutes. For like ten minutes, they would stay for <laughs> opening statements and, yeah, or maybe just closing statements. Or, they'd get, yeah, that's right. Yeah, or yeah. right before the closing statement. Cross examination. Right. That's yeah, yeah. They would have a very specific yeah. role, yeah. and then they would yeah. get going. We uh, we beat that joke into the ground. Yeah, that's all right. That's yeah. all right. Uh. Listen, and another thing is—is is it true a clock a clock would help, wouldn't help? I think it would. I mean, I don't—I don't think there's any question that uh, there's a decent amount of time wasted uh, on time just the pitcher just standing on the mound not doing anything, and that's another thing that has been increasing over the last say five years, at least during the pitch of X era, which is kind of the time that we can effectively measure the time in between pitches. It's been going up like half a second per year. Uh, for no obvious reason, like other than, you know, perhaps uh, pitchers have determined that they have a competitive advantage if they hold the ball longer, but we shouldn't really allow them to. I mean, it's even in the rule book. This isn't modifying the rules. This is just enforcing a existing rule, is pitchers aren't allowed to just stand there and hold the ball forever. So I'm not necessarily one who wants, like, a giant, you know, countdown board somewhere in the stadium, mm-hmm. but I think maybe we could even start by training pitchers in the minor leagues where, you know, perhaps in the minor league stadiums we do have a giant clock down, clock and, you know, a countdown timer. And, you know, they learn that this is my pitching routine. And pitchers are certainly a creature of habit. If you train them in the minor leagues to throw a ball every 17 or 18 seconds instead of every 22 or 23 seconds, they will learn. Uh, I think the tricky thing about a pitch clock is if you stand at, standardize it and say 20 seconds between pitches for all pitchers, it's it's probably unfairly affecting relievers because what we see is that starting pitchers work a lot faster than relief pitchers, uh, and low leverage situations generally tend to have l- less time between the pitches than high leverage situations, which is probably one of the reasons why relievers take longer. They generally pitch higher leverage situations. Uh, you know, for a reliever, maybe uh, the norm should be 25, but maybe for starting pitchers it should be 20. I think if we say, you know, like some relievers take 28, 29 seconds between pitches, if we tell them to cut that by, you know, 30-40%, perhaps it will be more negative on, on their performance uh, than it would be to tell a starter to knock, you know, 5 or 10% off their time. The um, I think I saw somewhere there's, there is a correlation between time, and maybe this is because of because of relievers, but there's some correlation between uh, time between pitches or pace. There's an inverse correlation. The longer the pace, the greater the run prevention. Yeah, that's almost certainly because the if you're not controlling for relief pitchers, you're basically uh, isolating uh, bullpen usage at okay. that point. Like almost all the guys who take the longest are relievers. Right. 
Yeah. And it seems like it's not that relievers are good because they take long, and they're taking a long time because of when they're used. And Red Sox starters. Yeah, Red Sox starters do take a long time as Is, well. Do you think that that at some level was organizational? It yeah. has to be. I, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've talked to some Red Sox people about this, and they swear it's not, but there's there's almost no way that every pitcher who goes to Boston could immediately work slower and then work faster when they leave and not have it be someone in the order. And is that, that that's true? There's there's indications that they become slower as Boston pitchers? Yeah. Okay. I think uh, I think Jeff wrote about this a year or two ago, but it's like when they get to Boston, they add like two or three seconds between their pitches right. for reasons that are not obvious. Right. Or re- reasons that... Maybe are well. I mean, the obvious explanation. If we're, are you familiar with Occam's razor at all, Dave Cameron? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we were, to, if we were to apply Occam's razor, yeah, we would say that the Red Sox were just telling their pitchers to work slower, right. which they say they're not doing. But I don't know if I believe them. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Do you want to say something? Uh, yeah. Let's let's have you say something. The uh, we oh we were just talking about the AL East. This is that's what they call segue. We're done with this conversation about time, by the way. Okay. Are we going to talk about Super Bowl game theory? Do you want to do that? I kind of want to. Well, I want to say something first. Is it's an unavoidable point for me is that um, you didn't watch the Super Bowl? <laughs> no, I did. I did. It was. I thought it was quite exciting. I think it's. Uh, I think. I always think it's a little bit silly when the people of the world, um, uh, w- without a, a moment's hesitation, criticize in this particular case the play calling of a uh, of an experienced coach. I don't yeah. want. I don't want necessarily. I, and I think you've pointed this out before. There's no good, of course, in appealing to authority. But at a certain level, you also just appeal to or recognize that this is an experienced individual who took all of the, you know, who took uh, the situation into account, and that's the play they called. Yeah, I think so. Unless I would say, um, it's not so much an appeal to authority as much as it is. I would reject the. Uh, idea of simplicity that almost seems like all of Twitter and and the commentators and everyone whose reaction I read after the game uh, thought that it was just such an obviously simple calculation. Like when someone says, can't you see how obvious it is just run the ball, there's no variables at play, I kind of just want to reject that opinion in that, uh, you know, things are almost never that simple, right? It's never black and white, you should run the ball 100% of the time. Uh, what if they put 11 men on the line of scrimmage? Would you have been okay with a throw then? Like, I mean, there's, there's, there are variables at which point strategies become less or more effective. So for people to say, this is the right decision, I don't want to hear any thought of any other possible scenario, I kind of want to just throw those opinions away and be like, well, let's maybe think about this a little bit further. And I would hope that that's what the Seahawks coaches were thinking, is that, you know, this is not a simple decision. There are variables here at play other than just run the ball, stupid. Right. And and the other thing is uh, the Seahawks coaching staff, in addition to having won the Super Bowl last year, yeah, uh, they've spent two weeks game planning for this exact game. Yeah. And they, I, they surely have a better understanding, certainly than I do, of the strengths and weaknesses of the Patriots' defense, and maybe specifically – the Patriots' goal line defense, and maybe even more specifically, the exact players involved in that defensive package for that play. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, what you're offering is absolutely an appeal to authority, which I generally don't like. Uh, but I will say that uh, there is uh, probably some truth to the fact that uh, the that no one really knows the probabilities better than the Seahawks coaches, most likely. Mm-hmm. So when we're sitting here saying it was very obvious that it should have been a hundred percent a run call and 
0% pass. The, the, the idea of passing is ridiculous, which is kind of the tenor of the response. Uh, and, you know, not to turn this into a football podcast. I don't know enough about football to say right. for sure one way or another. But I do think the game theory aspect is interesting. Uh, you know, and as I wrote today, kind of in the the pitch sequencing question, right, or the pitch class, the pitch selection question of, like, if you have a dominant pitch, is it, you know, when is it okay to throw your second or third or fourth best pitch in order to try and trick a hitter into seeing something he that he doesn't see coming? I think, you know, when it works, we don't think it's so crazy. It just happened to not work for the Seahawks. And maybe, maybe, maybe it was a low probability play. Maybe they really deserve criticism. But I think I'm hesitant to accept that it is as simple as everyone is making it sound. Right. It, I will say two things. One, it was a, it was also a, <laughs> a hell of a play by, uh, the, yeah. The, I mean, that was, I, I don't yeah. know if I've ever seen an interception quite like that. Yeah. No, um, correct. I mean, I'm, I'm not like a huge football watcher. Yeah. Uh, I used to watch a lot more than I have, but I don't remember. Uh, you know, two yard slants getting picked off by the cornerback all that often. Right, yeah, and it was just like how how physically he just interrupted the uh, the receiver's route. He basically ran through the guy. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, yeah. you don't you don't frequently see that because like because yeah. receivers are also typically bigger than than uh, defensive backs. Correct. Yeah. And the reason you don't see that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is it was interesting you bring up because you you addressed the pitch type question with regard to the Sergio Romo Miguel Cabrera. Um, uh, show, showdown? I just called it a showdown. Yeah. What was it? It's a con- confrontation from the, yeah. the World well, Series. I, I like the word showdown. I'm okay, okay with showdown. Well, from a couple years ago, right? Where yeah. well, it was, it was just like a like a two seam fastball. It, yeah, he threw, he threw a cookie. It was 88 down the middle of the plate. Miguel right. Cabrera. Right, but if you don't know if you're expecting, if you say, oh, there's like a what nine and ten chance it's going to be a slider, then that's what you're looking. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the interesting things about knuckleballers, right? Like. For years, uh, during R.A. Dickey's prime, uh, the number one pitch on, by pitch type linear weights in all of baseball was R.A. Dickey's fastball. Like, the most effective pitch in baseball was the 75 mile an hour straight thing that the knuckleball guy threw because no one was looking for it. And I don't think there's any question that the element of surprise, uh, has a pretty big impact on, uh, you know, the, the outcome of a pitch, uh, in baseball and probably the outcome of a play in, in football. I mean, you know, one of the most uh, common, uh, plays that we see in football, or at least I did growing up watching more football, was play action pass, right? Like you run the ball a couple times, everyone crowds the line of scrimmage, you fake a handoff and you throw it 50 yards, it works really well. And everyone's like, what a brilliant way to set up the pass with all those runs. And that's like a standard accepted, accepted theory in football is basically deception. And so I think for, you know, people to criticize the use of deception on that specific play, you know, I'm not so sure it's so obviously wrong. Right. Well, and it, you, the, the second point you bring up with regard to pitch types where you have in your mind a pitcher has, you say, oh, this, that's his elite pitch. But then you look at uh, the, the, the sort of uh, runs he's produced uh, with his repertoire as a whole. You know, you say, oh, his great pitch is a curveball. But then you see that somehow his, you know, his changeup or whatever has actually uh, produced the greatest number of runs on a rate basis, at least. Yeah. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. But then, you, but then, of course, you have to think about it. It's within context. Yeah, it's the interaction of the two, right? Like, right. I mean, you know, no one has a better pitch in baseball than Aroldis Chapman's fast, Chapman's fastball. Right. Things like 102 miles an hour, contact rate on it is extremely low. Um, you know, if you were going to kind of take this simple, uh, just go with your best stuff and don't let them beat you, uh, you know, throwing something that's not your not going to your own strengths, then Aroldis Chapman should throw 100% fastball. But no one actually thinks that, right? Like, it seems to be only on this play, because it didn't work, that now there's this 
kind of argument that, oh, well, you have to do the number one thing. You have to play to your strengths regardless of what the other team does. I mean, I guess if we're going to bring in even a third sport, growing up in the you know 1990s when Michael Jordan was uh, the best player of all time and the, the Bulls were constantly in the finals, I remember multiple NBA championship games decided by, like, Steve Kerr taking a baseline three because they put three guys <laughs> on Michael Jordan, so he passed it to the untalented white guy. Uh, you know, oh, good. at some Steve point... Steve Kerr is a good, he's a good shooter. Yeah, right. He's a great he shooter, that. really. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay, so he had one skill, and he, he used it well when they would triple-team Michael Jordan. But no one was saying, you know, well, it doesn't matter how many guys they put on Jordan, he has to shoot the ball because you have the greatest player of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's times when you say, okay, this team has chosen to take in this strategy away from me or make this strategy less optimal. I'm going to do this secondary thing, which now has a higher chance of success. Right. Uh, right, and maybe a counter-argument you see to that is, I think it would be phrased colloquially as a team getting too cute. Yeah. Uh, which would be essentially they are anticipating an adjustment by the other team, and so they don't necessarily go to uh, what, what you're suggesting, the equivalent of their Araldus Chapman fastball, when maybe that might be the appropriate response. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the criticism, right? It's like, oh, you have this great running back who's, you know, strong and beast mode, and, you know, he should just run run forward for a yard, which this is kind of the same argument as, like, when, you know, David Ortiz tries to hit the ball through the shift. Like, he's, a, you know, a beastly hitter who hits the ball really hard and almost all to, pull, to the pole field. But when he hits a line drive right into the second baseman uh, who's standing in shallow right field, everyone gets mad that he didn't bunt. And it's like, well, maybe we can't have it both ways. Maybe if we're if we want David Ortiz to bunt, that maybe we also want the Seahawks to occasionally throw the ball on the one-yard line. You know, you can't have it both ways. Some Most times in life, you can't even have it one way. You know? Mm, you ever you must that? not eat a Burger King. <laughs> I don't. I guess I don't eat a Burger King. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah. Anyway, uh, last thing, the um, just the Yankees' zips were released today. And no one cared. Well, maybe, I think, uh, yeah, maybe I mean, they don't. Yeah, well, I think it was like this morning when I woke up and checked traffic, it was very clear that the only thing people want to talk about today was football. So I wrote a football post. Kind oh, of. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, people yeah. like that football. Uh, the Yankees do, do not appear to be a very good team. Uh, they, so I will say that I think some of their Zips projections are somewhat pessimistic on playing time. Mm-hmm. Like, if you just look at the depth chart, you, you'd be like, this pitching staff is terrible, right? But, like, for Pineda, it was like 110 innings or something. and like Oh, yeah, uh, even less than that. I think 80, maybe. Okay, Chris, yeah. Chris Capuano was like 90. Or I mean, like, it basically projected the rotation to throw like 400 innings or 500 innings or something. Right. So, uh, you know, I think if you assume that their starting pitcher will throw 800 in some form, some of, some of their pitchers, maybe not those five specifically, but some number of starting pitchers will throw 800, 850, 900 innings, then maybe they're better than the depth chart makes them look. You're right, but they also, I think it's, it's a team that seems generally is, uh, vulnerable to injury. Um, yeah, well, they're old. The right, they have yeah. a lot of old I mean, players. It's an, it's an old team with not a lot of depth. God, and some of the contracts just look very bad now. I mean, the A-Rod one is an obvious one, but I remember, yeah. was it 2009? There was a heated, uh, heated battle between the Red Sox and the Yankees to acquire the services of Mark Teixeira. Yeah. That, that worked out pretty well for the Red Sox. Yeah. It's a, it is strange. That you, there's so much enthusiasm each offseason surrounding a team's ability to acquire the big free agent, but the, the degree to which those contracts work out doesn't seem to be... Yeah, you almost it's almost like a reason for mourning. <laughs> like, oh, we signed a big free agent. That's probably bad. Right. I guess it's good because it allows you to, like, it gives you a reason to, to be excited about the game in months, you know, during months when it's not being played. But. Well, I think primarily it 
these contracts are signed to significantly strengthen your short-term future. So as long as you don't care about what happens in five or six or seven years, or you care significantly less than what happens in the next year, like, I mean, Teixeira helped the Yankees for a couple of years, and it just looks bad now towards the end of the deal, uh, and maybe so bad that you wouldn't have done the contract again. But he was a good player for the Yankees at the beginning, and right. same with the CC Sabathia, and his first contract was actually fine. It just turns out to be the extension that wasn't a very good idea. Um, so I think, you know, as long as your kind of window of expectation is only a year or two or sometimes three years, then these deals look fine. But if you look at the whole thing, then you take some pain at the back end. Right, yeah. But, but and also the, the, the Beltran, in part this is due to, to um, playing time, but not entirely, the, the Beltran no, contract. That, that contract was silly. And I think we said that last year when they signed it. Like, the, that contract always looked silly. What was the uh, – do, do you have a sense of their motivation? They just f- felt a need to fill that role or – yeah, wasn't exactly sure why Carlos Beltran got 345 at that point in his career when he got like, to 226 the prior time. Oh, you all right, Dave Cameron? Yeah, sorry, I may have just dropped my phone, uh, but I'm still alive. Okay. Very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Beltran got like 226 the prior time he was a free agent for like 35, 36, and then he gets 345 for like 37, 38, 39, mm-hmm. like. The rationale, I mean, his first contract was too cheap, but uh, the overcorrection to be like, oh, yeah, the super decline phase of Carlos Beltran being worth $15 million a year, uh, that was a little strange, especially mm-hmm. if that, adding in that third year. You could have made an argument for 230 I guess, but 345 was was weird. Here's an interesting uh, fact that I did not – I didn't uh, even notice as I was looking before. We're discussing the, the, the sort of um, – the playing time projections for the Yankees players. Only one of the players projected by Zips – um, only one of them uh, crosses the 600 plate appearance threshold, and it's, yeah. it's yeah, Jake Cave. Players, right? It's Jake Cave. Oh, I don't think he's going to get 600 plate appearances. Well, or the or the equivalent. Uh, but yes, yeah. G- I mean, Jacoby Ellsbury second. Of course, Jacoby Ellsbury has missed uh, yeah. lar- large swaths of seasons a couple times. There's no question the Yankees have loaded up on kind of injury prone older players. Yeah. Yeah, even Ellsbury's entering his 31, age 31 season. Yeah. Yeah. About as good as Willie McGee so far in his career. (laughs) Much better than Vince Coleman. Much better than Vince Coleman. Much better than Vince Coleman. Yeah, I guess Vince Coleman just wasn't – he was really fast. He was fast. He stole a lot of bases, but I guess not super efficiently. Uh, and I think I guess the main thing is Vince Coleman wasn't rated a very good defender, right? Like the yeah, he's fast, like, but like the the metrics didn't love him as a right. fielder. Yeah. Where Willie McGee, I think, was actually like a pretty good center fielder. Right. Yeah. Both funny looking. Yeah. I think Willie McGee fewer anger issues too, isn't that right? Uh. I think didn't maybe. Vince Coleman throw? Didn't he throw something into a crowd at one point? Did he throw fireworks at some people. Firecrackers. Maybe, firecrackers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It does seem like a not a great idea. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right, you're done, Dave Cameron. Unless you have something else to add, to add urgently. Uh, no, no. All right. all right. Well, let's uh, let's be done with it then. Okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right, that is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.